Assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome to the Kalamcast podcast, the newly named Kalamcast podcast. With me today is a very special guest by the name of Abdul Shahid Drew. And Abdul Shahid Drew is a very well-known person for those of you who know him. He's uh, been a teacher for quite a long time, has been involved in da'wah. And it's come to my understanding that he's been writing a book on the history of Muslims in Australia. Is that right, Abdul Shahid? Yes, um, that's correct. I've been researching the topic for a while. So, yeah, the end product will be a book, inshallah. Okay, that's good to hear. Now, what basically motivated you to write such a book? I mean, it's quite an undertaking. I think you've been doing this for a couple of years now. It's not like one year, two year, three. I think it's, you know, how, how long has it been? Like <laughs> um, five years plus, I think. Let's not count how long, <laughs> but let's say the journey started. No, I think that's an incredible a point to sort of mention in the sense that uh, <laughs> it takes quite a deal of passion to sort of uh, go through a project such as that. You know, a lot of people, they'd be wanting to do a project such as this and then give up in year one or year two. But uh, mashallah, alhamdulillah, it's something that you're pushing through and, uh, you know, it deserves to be recognized. Yeah, well, you could say it's a hobby of mine on the side because you get to travel and I like photography. So that's another thing. I've, I've been improving over the years while doing this. And so just being out and about, and about, it gives you an excuse to be out there or to explore Australia more, you could say, which is a good thing. There's so much out there that um, I feel like so many of us uh, we're missing out so much. Instead of going overseas, we could just travel around Australia and have the best adventure. And that's what I've been doing over these years. I've been traveling to different cities, all states, every state, and each state has its own bit of Muslim history to tell. Okay, so what is so special that is in Australia, basically? Well, for the Muslim audience, put it that way. Yeah, I was just thinking besides the Muslim history, just the just being outside of nature is a good thing. You have to have a break from sea life from time to time. Uh, I've got three children, so I like to take them away from, or to detox from the city life and from the screens and the regular things. Um, but as far as Muslim history goes, we have a very rich Muslim history. And a lot of it is unrecognized or it's not talked about. It's recognized, you could say, but it's not really, um, it's not given that much credit, you could say. Okay. Why, why is that the case? Hmm. Look for the layperson, someone who's not studying you know, Australian history as extensively as you are. How would you argue the opposite? You could say Australia has a white history in that sense. From That's the, what we're studying in history books. From colonization, we focus a lot on the big, uh, the main things. Um, I remember when I studied Australian history in high school and primary school, we, we got the basics. When I got to university, then I felt like, wow, this is like the un, unknown history of Australia. It's much deeper. Mm. Um, I'm talking about general history as well. For example, we learned a bit about uh, what blackbirding was. And it's like, we didn't hear about that. What it's, is blackbirding? <laughs> like part of it is to do with uh, the Pacific Islanders. Uh, ships would turn up and advertised that they want to buy things from the islanders okay. and then when the islanders came on board to sell their goods they'll be snatched or grabbed tied up and then put down in the hole of the boat 
and shipped to Australia to work more or less as slaves in Queensland. That, that so, sounds exactly like slavery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so something like that happened. Um, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, you learn about those things and then it, you never heard of it before. You'd be, you're surprised. So as far as the Muslim history goes, like that's just one example of um, something that happened in Australian history. There's many things, but it's, what do you say, Muslim history, there were convicts, and then you have Muslim convicts. There were some people who were convicts and they were Muslims. And in fact, they're probably the oh, first... you've got to the give first us more settlers. information. That's <laughs> um, very interesting. Yeah, it is. Well, I'm not sure, but like I've got some videos, probably some of the, the people have seen them uh, from the audience. However, um, one person, one grave in particular in, in Tasmania, uh, what was his name? His name was Zimran, I think it was. Even though it's probably not his original name. Because Zimran, Uram. So his surname is Uram. Okay. And I know that doesn't match with uh, Muslim names today, you could say. Or especially, he's from Hyderabad in India. Oh. But um, it probably doesn't match One the names. People. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a um, he came on the third fleet, and that's only a year after the first fleet. So where did he, he came directly from India or something? No, in England. He was in England. He was okay. caught stealing or robbing from a dwelling. Wait, what was he doing in England? <laughs> well, British Empire, I guess they had a lot of um, Indians going to and fro. From India yeah. and, and England. And what a story from India yeah. to you know, England, England, then England to Australia. Australia, um, pretty much a life sentence as oh, a wow. convict, seven years plus, and he ended up he ended up going to Norfolk Island, and then he went to Tasmania. Was given a large amount of land, and he, he lived most of his life there, and then he became very old, and actually got killed or robbed when he was in his eighties. The thing is, he came on the third fleet, and that's only a year after the first fleet. And that means he's one of the early, you know, people to establish, like, to start off Australia with this, uh, what, um, farming and things like that. Oh, okay. So do we know any more details about his life over here? All I can say is the records show that his name changed about 10 times. Um, Oh, and that's probably because people he couldn't write English apparently by the looks of it uh, he would just mark his name with an X so that indicates that he was illiterate at least in English and then his name would in every record book when you follow his uh, his his life over the years and where he moved to the people would write his name differently so probably they hear his name and they write down what they hear and obviously some people are not really attuned to foreign names so they might simplify it mm. was he given a westernized name you know as no, some people no, do but to themselves today <laughs> that has happened with other convicts in the past who are muslim okay and john was the most popular name of course it is yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah sadly yeah. <laughs> but you can imagine what about the other muslims who came as convicts we don't know what happened to them in as much detail um they all we know is that they arrived here, but once they arrived, we don't know much that, like, what else happened to them. Did they change their names? Did they go back after they finished their sentence to, to another country? Mm. Or did they just uh, assimilate? And I guess I personally, and maybe even, you know, some of the listeners, I'm sort of curious as to how or 
if Islam was established with the presence of these, you know, Muslim uh, prisoners, I suppose, or convicts? Yeah, so you don't have institutions at that time course, in Australia. Yeah. You don't have mosques as such. If you did, it would be uh, low-key, yeah. someone's house, if there's yeah. like two or three Muslims in the community. Do we have any details about that? No. no. You can only guess. <laughs> mm. I mean, from as far as I know, I don't know much about that. The thing is, they're, they're convicts as well, so one would assume that, you know, obviously they're the, they were the lay people who were taken for small charges, etc. Et and so forth, so they might have, you know, it would be safe to say that they didn't really know much about Islam or their own religion, right? Um, depends, really. So, you, you presume they had a basic Muslim upbringing if they're yeah. from a Muslim country or a Muslim uh, with a like, like, large population like India. But then you've got some, for example, I think one was from uh, Iraq. You've got someone from Africa who may have had an Arab background who was caught uh, in Mauritius the, at the time. There was the British arrested someone and took him to Australia who was uh, someone who worked with ships. So probably there are people who, are, who worked at sea, many of them, some of them, and we have some of their names. But then... Um, you know, you can only presume like they they identified as Muslims, and you've got some that were written down as Muslims, identified as Muslims by the the ships that brought them, but then you don't hear much about them. So you can't. They probably came in to Australia, worked, were given a certain area to work, and then they died here, and not much news about them. Mm. Not not much is known about them. So yeah, it just what makes you wonder, the, really. Yeah, of course. Uh, what about the Af- Afghan Kamaliyas? Have you come across anything with regards to them? Yeah, there's a lot of information about them and you could dig really deep with so much of their stories and and at the same time, um, like for me, I keep finding out new information about them from time to time. And if I come across different families, they might say they know a story about them and that story is not recorded by academics. There are so many stories that have not been recorded. Okay, you can't see it, but I'm nodding my head. <laughs> so it's very interesting that in the sense that a lot of these camels that are out in the deserts of you know Darwin uh, whatever it is they're um, basically the descendants of you know uh, the camels that the Afghans brought over that's true we've got the we have the largest population of wild camels in the world so usually uh, camels are domesticated mm. in other countries, but in Australia they're wild, and mm. there's so many of them. Yeah. Um, I can't give you a number. How we many? We know which specific de- deserts in in Darwin. Uh, you're looking uh, West Australia, uh, Northern Territory, maybe the borders the of uh, Simpson Desert where Queensland is. There, um, you they do come close to, I don't know, maybe a hundred kilometers to the south of Australia. Because um, the Nullarbor has signs warning you of camels, <laughs> mm. even though um, they probably haven't been sighted and there the for wild. a while. Mm. Yeah, in the wild. Mm. So they've got pretty much the centre of Australia is a is an open area for them, and the the pests their pests because the, well the farmers are allowed to shoot them because they they're damaging their fences pretty much. Oh, so they're a pest basically. They are a pest from that perspective. <laughs> um, as far as Australian, uh, what say, people complain about them damaging the environment. So camels, what they do is they 
they tread on the land pretty gently, like it's a nice way, that the smooth way that they, they, they press on the land. Um, then they have, they eat from branches here and there. They don't just wipe out all the vegetation. They munch a little bit on this tree and then a little bit on another tree, so you don't notice much damage there. The only problem they can cause pretty much from, from what I see is they drink too much. And that causes a problem for the native animals who rely on certain water sources. So you might say they're a pest from that perspective. Well, that makes sense, you know. They drink a lot. Mm. So they can go for like a few days without water, but they can drink and hold a lot of water. So in these areas, are we mainly dealing with uh, dromedary camels or Bactrian camels? It is the dromedary, but there are some photos showing that Bactrian camels were brought here. Mm. But as far as I understand, Bactrian camels are more for colder climates. Mm. Yeah, they've got more, more fur or wool, whatever it's called. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, dromedary camels are, are, are the type of camels with one hump. One and, hump. Uh, you know, yeah. The other is the type of two humps. Two humps, yeah. So I, I guess most people would be interested in the types of real stories that actually exist within this history that you're talking about. Uh, has there truly been some kind of link between the Muslims and the Aboriginal community, historically speaking? There are many links with the Aboriginals. So the, there are so many Aboriginal tribes that the Aboriginals, uh, oh, sorry, that Camaleers married into. And a lot of, of course, a lot of them were, the Aboriginals are going through their own difficulties um, when they have the white, uh, let's say they call it the white, <laughs> not white Australia policy. Before that, we have a lot of uh, settlement over Australia and a lot of Aboriginals being uh, moved around and also brought up on missions where they're Christianized. And a lot of them who were Christianized may have ended up marrying uh, uh, Afghan Camaleers. So they may have been, uh, um, that, that's, that's, that was quite common, but not always the case. So, so you, how did it work? Did these uh, Aboriginal women convert, or wasn't was it an issue? At, you do have some uh, who ma who actually converted, but then also you have some who kept their Christianity, and the children will grow up, and even if their mum was a Muslim, they still did not learn much about the religion, and if their fathers are working for a few weeks away, and then they come back and they only see them for a short time, then they go for another job, they don't have that. Uh, uh, you know, the deeper understanding of the religion. Hmm. So many Aboriginals, of course, may have adopted the Islamic faith, but at the same time, they may have not uh, learned much about the religion. There's no institutions back then, and they relied on the Camaleers to teach what they had to their children. And hmm. there were some, of course, who were Christians. Actually, the, the Aboriginals who stayed Christian, or that, or, and then the children will grow up, and they may... Um, have this kind of identity crisis, you could say. Of course, that yeah. happens still. You know, that still <laughs> it happens. would have been hard too. I can't imagine living like that in that uh, environment and you know learning much right. about the religion. It's not really uh, something you'd have, you wouldn't have much material back then, not many books in English mm. and not many people to learn from as well. Of so course. people yeah. are coming and going. So that's why you have a large generation of the... So many descendants, so many Cameliers had children. Not just from Aboriginals, also from European What time frame are we talking about, basically? So the first Cameliers that worked in Australia came in in the 1860s. Hmm. Well, 1860 in particular, and not far from here in Melbourne for the Birkin Wills expedition. Hmm. So that was a... 
a race to who can cross the continent first. Mm. We had Stuart who was in Adelaide. He was doing it, trying to attempt it by going from south from Adelaide to the north. When you think about it, it's not really that long ago. I mean, it's yeah, you know, no. maybe at least 120 years before I was born, right? So that's basically two old ladies you know, <laughs> before I was born. You know? True. That's, uh, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, that's, and soon after that, actually at that time, cameras and photography was actually uh, available. So you, get, you do get black and white photos of these camels. Hmm. Um, and of the people who were in the expedition. Right, right, right. You get lots of drawings as well. And the newspapers are available that talk about these events. That was a big event, of course. The Birkin Wills expedition it was huge. But you had like three or four cameleers that had to help with that. Um, yeah. So that's the Birkin Wills expedition. That's just explorers. You got right. so many explorers were helped by the cameleers. They had to assist them. And the explorers who had these cameleers with them would explain how hard, hard working they were and how they relied on them so much and how probably they saved their lives in many instances. So it was like a, a necessity to have these experts with them to handle the, des- the animals in the desert. Mm. So some, the most famous exploring expeditions in those times, the cameleers were there. Mm. Like yeah. you look at Ayers Rock, for example. Mm. Um, the f- when, uh, was it Giles? I can't remember. Don't ask me. Explorer now. <laughs> anyway, the when the the first European or the first non non indigenous people to find Ayers Rock, one of them was a Muslim and he was with this explorer and they both went on top of Ayers Rock to check it out mm. to have a look at the view and things like that. So you get these interesting discoveries and there were Muslims who were there. Wow. But they're not they're not the main. Explorers. In most cases, there's probably yeah. also an They're Aboriginal tracker help. with them, and there's, right. there's helpers along the way. You don't hear about their names. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in the course of your journeys uh, throughout Australia, uh, have you visited the first mosque in Australia? First mosque. Well, they first mosques don't exist anymore. <laughs> so the first mosques, as far as we know, were tin mm. mosques. Um, and there were these, like you look at Marie, they had a mud mosque. There was one, um, I believe, you know, the, the pictures of it were circulating uh, quite often a couple of years ago. And what does it look like? Do you remember? It's like a hut, you know, it's like a With the mud walls, exactly. yeah. Yeah, now that's a replica mosque. Of course. Is it used? It's, it, it's as far as I know, it's a symbolic ah. uh, replica. I see. It's I see. not even in the location where the original mosque was. I see. Um, people that built that were the, the locals of the area and some descendants of the Cameliers and it's supposed to be as a memorial mm. um, but they will tell you when you're there I've actually been there I was there in 2014 so if you if in my most recent video where I talk about that town um, those photos of Maria from my camera <laughs> so it's like a but I wasn't a very good photographer back then I improved since then but <laughs> nevertheless they tell you a bit about that mosque yeah, it's a replica, but it represents the original mosque that was there. So the right. first one that was there was made in that way, a mm-hmm. bit bigger and with a bit more support and things so like that. So you can actually go inside it and look around? And you can go inside it, yeah. It's pretty simple. Is it accurate? I mean, is it facing the Qibla and everything? Um, oh, I have to double check that. It may be, but or maybe not. I'm not sure. Mm. I have to double check that, yeah. yeah. 
But as far as I know, it's not intended to be used as a mosque. It's mm. just a something to tell tourists. Right. And at, the, at that same place, you'll have the train line there. You have a little museum that's uh, next to the train line. It tells you a little bit about the town, a bit about the history of the Muslim Cavaliers. And also, there's a guy called Tom Cruise. You probably haven't heard of him. He's like the original, not the Tom Cruise, the actor. Tom Cruise with a K. He's, uh, he was the postal like the, delivery man back okay. then. And he was driving a truck. And mm. some of his history is there. So there's a movie called Back of Beyond. And he's he's the star of that. It's a documentary. Okay. And there's also a Muslim camelia in that film called Beja. He's, uh, they show him going off to pray where the mosque used to be. So he's just praying out in the open with his prayer mat. Okay. So there, there are bits and pieces. You'll see remnants of it in some history mm. here and there. But there's some interesting stories you have to look dig deep well tell us another one interesting one from oh. your treasure trove of stories that's the thing last so, time uh, we met you told me a story of uh, a man who who rescued or took one of his children uh, from a hospital or something something like that I can't remember oh, okay yeah there is a, a story about that there was an uh, Afghan camelia He's married to someone who has an Aboriginal heritage or descent. And as far as they could tell, the child didn't look um, like dark enough, looked like the skin was lighter. And in that sense, they would look at the child. That's the way they looked at things, uh, especially... With, Some people still do. But. Like, this, like what you remember, there's a stolen generation. Yeah, like that's something real that happened and sad. Yeah. But the thing is, the hospital at the time looked at this child and saw that it's it, it's not a pure Aboriginal. That's the way they looked at it. And they thought, well, and I think the eyes may have looked different. So they thought they'd keep it, as far as we know from this story. Mm. Um, when the daughter, she went back. So this is the daughter of, I think she's mixed, Aboriginal and Afghan. So she explained what happened to her dad and then he, he came with, with some swords or something on his uh, camel. Don't know if he's going to use them or not, but just saying he means business. He walks into the hospital, grabs his kid and they let him go with that child. Hmm. Yeah, but they had to be careful. There are some people who worried about losing their children, even though we don't know of it happening, but wow. they were worried that their children were looked at and they I mean, may those have been... Are incredible <laughs> stories. It's just uh, a shame that they've kind of disappeared or, or there's only remnants of them left yeah but we do hear about the stolen generation but at the same time you've got the cameleers and got their children and sometimes they may have felt that there's a threat there that they may be stolen was but at the same time they at most of the time there was uh they were out of that um away from that threat you could say but they did have that suspicion that you know be careful hmm okay Mm. Uh, so is there anything that particularly surprised you during the course of your research not really you could say the only thing that surprises me that the the information is quite broad there's so much detail has been preserved there's so many things I'd love to dig up more at the same time like I said you could, I think I think you could write an encyclopedia really on mm. this history um, at the same time you put it in the context of the Australian history there's so much um, so many things you could say about the Muslims and their contribution, nation building, things like that, working hard. 
And that's what I feel like is not acknowledged today so much. Like Muslims have been here a long time, but it's been a lot of hard work in the history. But that's the Afghan Kamaliyas and the early settlers. And then also the after the Kamaliyas, many nationalities arriving in Australia to work and, you know, become Australians mm. and that type of thing. That's That mostly uh, happened in the uh, 60s. Yeah, 60s, 70s. So that's mm. another huge topic. And then you can't summarize that. You There's so many... Uh, yeah. Well, what were the factors that led to that happening in the first place? And the, <laughs> the, the, the white uh, Australia policy uh, ended yeah, around that time. You do have the multiculturalism, mm. the official launch of multiculturalism. So before that, you had the integration, where you come from different countries, but you have to integrate to the society culturally. So on the outside, you look like one of us, but on behind closed doors, you can still worship as you like. And before that, you had the assimilation period where pretty much you become like the culture inside your house and outside your house. That was the early assimilation period. Well, how did from, that work? From the white Australia policy, the early 1900s Worth, up to the 1940s. Yeah, yeah. Um, during that latter period, were there any... Uh, there, there was probably not very much Muslim migration at that time. You've got the left... The, the final you know, survivors of the Afghan Kamaliyas. Yeah. You got their descendants. Yeah. And a lot of them moved on and slowly, you know, established themselves in different parts of Australia. Right. You got the old mosque that stayed open all the time, like in Adelaide. Their mosque has been there since 1888. So the Adelaide Mosque is the oldest mosque that is still standing and used continuously since it's been made. Mm. Um, and then you have so when the Afghans were dying out, we say Afghans in the, you know, in the general sense. There were many of them came from the northern frontier of India, which is present day Pakistan, and Baluchistan, and even many of them came from India itself. Some of them also came, of course, from Afghanistan. So when we say Afghans, we mean all those areas. Right, right. So any reason why? No, maybe it was just simple for them back then. Who knows? <laughs> there probably were some that came from Afghanistan to start with and the name, you know, was became became popular. But yeah, can't help you there. <laughs> mm, okay. So how far are you into this research of yours? I felt like I've covered pretty much everything in a general sense. And then there are a few hints of different aspects that I've touched on to give people an idea. So I'm trying to summarize what I have rather than give everything that I have right now. I've got too many words. I've got like 60,000 words and that's too much to put out there for a picture book. So it's going to be an illustrated book. Does it have to be a picture book? I yeah, it does. Be a... <laughs> because the problem is um, I find that academics have done a great job in preserving the history, but they haven't, they haven't done well in presenting something for the public to 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 digest so you get some great academic journals you get some great books that have focused on one aspect of the muslim history whether it's the cameliers or the the macassans the early malays that came here does your book touch much on the macassans yeah i try to cover everything really Mm. but in a broad sense i even touch on theories but i mentioned that there are theories so before the macassans some people might say the chinese may have come to australia Mm. but it's only a theory and there's no proof for that but why would they say that? Because there was a, a, a captain or a navigator called Zhenghua and he was the, the, 
an admiral under the was it the Ming Dynasty back then? And the Ming Dynasty was quite ambitious in sailing around the world up to Africa and trading and even they brought back a giraffe for the the emperor at the time. So Zhenghua was a Muslim. Zhenghua was a Muslim. He had he had many people who were Muslim on his on his fleets. Uh, on his fleet, sorry. So maybe three times they went out mm, uh, and and travelled. And they say he may have had some ships that went to Australia. It's just a theory. It's no. There's nothing to prove that. We do know he went through the archipelago, Indonesian archipelago, past the Malacca Strait, through Malaysia, where Malaysia is today. Uh, some of his crew performed Hajj. He went up to the west, I mean the east side of Africa. That stuff is confirmed. But anything beyond that, it's just theory. So, speaking of theories, within uh, Aboriginal people themselves, mm. is there any evidence that they've had interaction with Muslims due to some of their uh, traditions or cultural beliefs or anything like that? Yeah, so they say before the Macassans, the Aboriginals have a people who... Visited their lands before, and anthropologists try to dig out stories regarding this, but we don't know much about it. Then other people, uh, like archaeologists and other historians, they look at cave paintings or rock art—not just cave paintings, but rock art in general—and they see that there are some depictions of boats and people, and they they only they 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 do not have dates for these. There's one rock painting that predates the 1600s or it's, or it's 1600s or before, according to their estimates. Um, they estimate because on top of it, there is uh, uh, beeswax on top that has been used to make another art on top of that rock, rock art de- mm. depicting a, a boat. And they say, well, the, the beeswax has been dated to roughly the 1600s. So therefore, the picture behind it must be before that. So you've got these theories. The Aboriginals have narrated oral histories, um, so they didn't have a written history. And a lot of historians dismiss that, sadly. Like, they just consider, no, they, they, a lot of historians just want documented evidence. Something written, something confirmed, and sure. they, they rely on that. Is there one particular uh, myth or story or legend that comes to your mind? Mm. Anything like that? Now, all I can say is that they say there were a people who existed, who visited that land, these lands before the Macassans, but who knows for sure. Mm. The stories aren't clear. Anthropologists are not really sure as well, you could say. Some think they're sure, but all I can say is I haven't come to anything conclusive. And yeah, it's hard to say really. But as for the Macassans, the first visits that they had regarding the Aboriginals we only have the oral histories. We don't have anything written. So what the Aboriginals passed on is that the Macassans arrived and the common story that's passed around is that the Muslims would camp on the beach and then there were some young boys who would be looking at them, watching them, to find out who these strangers are. Then these young boys would be... like They'll notice them. They brought the young boys, the young Aboriginals, to eat with them. Then those young boys went back to their tribe and they'll tell the people that these are friendly visitors. And then the tribe would uh, interact and meet with them. Then them young boys would learn the language of the Macassans. So that's the general story we find of... Fascinating. That's first contact Mm. based on Aboriginal uh, oral tradition. Okay, that's fascinating. So when is this book coming out? 
Uh, well, I said it was coming out last year, so it looks like probably the end of this year, I hope. Um, one of the setbacks or I, I have had this year, we did apply for funding and I okay. did go through a reputable organization to apply for funding this year and I was confident. I thought, that's it. We just need the, the money. What's the funding for? A grant to get the book printed. Okay. So I've got the... T- I've Why got- don't you just do it online and, you know... Yeah, possibly. There is like a few thousand dollars I want to spend just to get the final touches, the book all edited, graphic design, all that, make it nice and presentable, bring all the pictures and text together, the editing and all that, which can take a couple of months at least. Um, Other than that, it could be print ready and then we could do print on demand, things like that. But we thought, I thought that that's it. I'll get the money this year and then we'll, we'll speed up the process. Um, part of the problem was the dilemma of that was they said, oh, you just, the feedback we got from the grants was that, oh, you just want just to print the book. Why don't you just, you know, instead of spending that money on printing a book, do websites and have information there on it. Like they're thinking of a way of doing it in a cost effective way. That was their feedback. Mm. So I thought my plan is to do both actually. But I'd like the schools to have resources in like have a resource. I'd like a Muslim, like... If I'm giving a gift to someone, um, whether it's a Muslim or a non-Muslim, some colleagues at work, I'd love to give them this magazine that's full of pictures that tells the history of Muslims in Australia. I'd prefer to give them like a hard copy as a gift. And that grant was only for 3,000 copies of the book to start us off. So either way, we'll look at plan B and we're working on other things. I've had since I've been working in this field. So what is plan B? Plan B... We'll see. <laughs> Which we can apply for another grant. At the same time, like I said, I might just work on... We've, I'm working with some people who have offered their time to put it together. So yeah. then we may, you know, get it to the stage where it's print ready and then we'll see what we can right. do from so there. So why is this project important to you? I felt like many years ago we talked about this and we gave a little... We, did, we, we worked with the community to, sh- to do small... You know, documentaries. I've done a few little documentaries myself about it, and I felt like the positive feedback. People are so surprised by this. What it helps is it helps demystify who Muslims are, in a sense. Like it's going to have a bit about what Muslims believe in there. At the same time, it's going to show people that Muslims have been here all the time, even before colonization. There's been this contact with Muslims, and there's also Muslims have been helping with nation building, things like that. So it should be this kind of appreciation or respect for those people who worked in the past it shows you a lot of uh, life lessons for those people who were here in those days who identify as Muslims they would have struggled mm. with their identity and, and would have had a lot of hardship yeah. and they faced racism and things like that Even, but you, you know, do some f- people complain about you know establishing the five prayers a day you know imagine what it would have been like in that time you know yeah exactly and that's why they would if have helped each other yeah. by being together they had these communities called Gantowns where they were able to congregate when they finish their work, finish their shift, their long dra- journeys, they come back to the Gantown, they'll find their community there. And that, every Gantown had a mosque or two. And that would have helped them keep their identity. But like we said before, when their children grew up, they lost their identity. What I'm curious about is uh, Ramadan and Eid during those times. You know, how did they do? Yeah, know? well, that's the thing. We, look, we, we don't want to focus just on the negative things. There were non-Muslims there as well who acknowledged that they had fasting and they called it the Muslim Christmas. So when the Muslims wow. had Eid, the people who were in the communities that they worked with knew about it. 
and that's the thing they did integrate well but at the same time there was this uh, issues the issues with the the media at the, at the time uh, the politics the, always at the time the media, always the media. <laughs> and so they were marginalized to a certain extent at the same time there were you know people kind-hearted community members who had a good relationship with them and respected them like you see one funeral where a lot of people turned up and you know half of them Muslim half of them not Muslim it's just they, they respected they had people that they had respect for mm. oh that's good to hear I'm, I'm, I'm happy that exists yeah um, so tell me you personally why do you have a passion for this project you know you've been working on it for a number of years what is it that has been uh, bringing you back to this project you know you've been probably telling yourself I'm going to do this I'm going to finish it I'm going to I'm going to yeah. work hard on it it's like everyone has their niche like uh, last week's interview that I heard recently with uh, brother Wasim he's focusing yes, episode on episode one so. yeah episode one exactly yeah. <laughs> um, I thought that was great he is covering something he feels responsible for mm. and that he is working uh, working hard at you know trying to help demystify what Islam yeah, is I mean look I think that's part of the the message of this particular podcast in the sense that everyone has something that they can contribute everyone has that's something right. that's special about them I love history in general yeah. I did I even uh, that's why you're I, here <laughs> I guess even uh, going back history in a sense clarified uh, how Islam is on the world stage in history it's like the final chapter you could say of all the other, you know, the Abrahamic faiths in general and what goes before it. So that's, history in general is a, is a great thing. Mm. But at the same time, as far as uh, this history goes, I find it's my responsibility. Like I felt like I'll do my part. But if someone else is working on the Muslim history of Australia, I'm happy for them too. I'm not feeling like, oh wait, this is my work, my job. I feel like we can't get enough of it mm. actually because it does help break down barriers um, it helps people it helps people um, realize you know who Muslims are to a certain extent. There, there's many fruits or so a lot of benefits from doing this. Are there any other areas of this history that you're passionate about? Muslim he's, history? Well, he's, he's spent some time thinking about that one. What I would like to do is help change the curriculum at school as well. Okay. So we learn about the European history, we learn about colonization. Um, we learn a bit a little about the Dutch. And yeah. their mapping of Australia. However, the Indonesian, or not Indonesian, we call it Malay context. Okay. So Sulawesi is where the Makassans came from. But at that time, they'd been broadly referred to as Malays. Um, I find that their contact from with Australia, which at, at least goes back to the 1700s, according to documented evidence. Okay, skip the other, you know theories and things like that but 1700s there's documented evidence and historians can all agree that's when they have been uh, visiting Australia every year so from the 1700s up to 1907 there was this regular contact every year like okay. every year and in the 1800s it was large uh, large numbers and fleets coming to Australia so when Matthew Flinders he navigated around Australia circumnavigated around Australia he noted that there were 1,000 Muslim men on the beach in the north of Australia when he was there. Mm. 1,000 visitors. Wow. And that's happening every year. What I feel is that this history is quite significant, but it's just almost 
as if it didn't exist, the way it's discussed in history books in Australia. Mm. So I felt like this should be taught as mainstream yeah, it's topic. It's a huge chunk of our identity as Australian it Muslims, is. which is lost. And diplomatically, it can help strengthen bond between Indonesia and Australia. For mm. current day, we've got a common history there. Um, and it was a positive history for the most part. There are incidents that would have happened back then. There are some you know, things that went wrong, but overall is a positive history. Mm, and that's, that's amazing. amazing that quite yeah. a bit of the details have been preserved and passed on. Mm. And this is all happening while Australia was growing, you could say, as a new settlement for, for Europeans. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, so I want to buy this book. What's the title? <laughs> Have you thought of a title? I was, I was going to launch that on the Facebook page on Muslim History Projects. I was going to say, like, give it to the audience to decide. So I don't have a name yet. And okay. if anyone has such suggestions, I'm happy. I don't want to give it a plain name like the, the Illustrated Muslim History of Australia. But that summarizes what it is. But if someone can come up with a better so name. So how can people contact you? You know, Why don't you plug the Facebook page? Um, yeah, so Muslim History Projects is the Facebook page. Um, other than that, they can contact me. I've got my YouTube channel, Shahid Drew, and that's got my, my history videos there. And some people contact me through that, or they put a message at the bottom of a video, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but other than that, I haven't. <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. Really, yeah. So, Alhamdulillah, uh, look, that's given us a pretty good insight as to what this whole project is about. And Alhamdulillah, I'm really happy to have heard all of that, and it's. You know, Alhamdulillah, it's a great thing that uh, you're you're doing this project that you're so passionate about. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. We've hit the forty-one minute mark, so we'll probably close it off over here, and we'll probably have you up again and as a as a as a repeated guest. Yep. So, I- is there any last <laughs> word you'd like to give to the audience? Yeah, I could just say like what we're just discussing now in this short time is just the tip of the iceberg. So it is so mm. much information. And I'm happy to share it all with people soon. But uh, yeah, anyway, people want to help contribute too, they feel free. You heard it, guys. Tip of the iceberg. You can contact him. You can start sending him hundreds of messages on Facebook. Stories, interesting things, even photos, something unique. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So that was wonderful. It was uh, a great opportunity for you to come over here and uh, share your information with us. Uh, so guys, I hope you found it useful as well. Till next time, keep on calamin'.